Hello, and welcome to the Floating Blue podcast, the official podcast of the International Street and Ball Hockey Federation. My name's Ben Royal, and I'm excited to be hosting the first ever series of the Floating Blue podcast, in which we'll be bringing you up to date on the biggest news stories and catching up with the biggest names in the ball hockey world. The Floating Blue podcast is an ISBHF production, hosted by myself, Ben Royal, produced by Sambrook Wilkinson, and overseen by the ISBHF secretary, David Tor. All opinions shared on the Floating Blue podcast are those of the individual that shares them, and not of the ISPHF. So without further ado, welcome to the Floating Blue. Having featured in 22 Canadian National Championships and 8 ISBHF World Championships, Daniel Medeiros is a three-time Canadian National Champion and a two-time World Championship All-Star. Now working as General Manager of the Canadian men's team in preparation for Montreal 2022, Daniel sat down with us to discuss his storied career in which he played for both Canada and Portugal. To kick off, Daniel, we've just got a few icebreakers, nothing too strenuous, just sort of get you in the mood of answering questions. To start off with, You've got to pick one player to play with. Are you going Sidney Crosby or Conor McDavid? I'm going to say Sidney Crosby. Nice, nice. I guess he's got the longer period of performing at the, the top level. Uh, yeah, and then so NHL themed again. Love him as a player. Oh, I mean, it's impossible not to. And hopefully we'll get Crosby and McDavid on the same Olympic team if Crosby gets back to full fitness. That would be fantastic. So NHL themed again. Early season Stanley Cup predictions. And actually, I want a disclaimer with this. Will you tell us who you support in the NHL and then who you think will win it? Well, I'm a diehard Maple Leafs fan. And, oh, nice. Uh, I'm a Maple Leafs fan. Last year so. was extremely heart- heartbreaking. Yeah. I mean, I've been, uh, I was born in 1971. So unfortunately, in my lifetime, the Leafs haven't won. And I, you know, we have this thing in, in Toronto where we say, just one before I die. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, I would love to win the Stanley Cup in my lifetime just to enjoy that. Um, last year, I thought we had kind of like a, a kind of a fortunate draw in the sense of the Canadian division. And I thought the road to the cup final would have been easier than most seasons. But, you know, that's not how it works. Playoff hockey is different. And uh, I knew it wasn't going to be an easy series against Montreal. And goaltending uh, is crucial. And uh, a goalie can steal a series. And that's what Carey Price did. Yeah, well, I mean, you know that all too well with your career as well. So shifting to ball hockey, if you could pick one former teammate to live on a desert island with, we'll say you're trapped there for about a week or two, who would you go for? Oh, wow, that's a tough question. Uh, It depends on what what we want to do. That's a a, a great question. Uh, I'm going to say Wayne Shears. Wayne Shears was a former teammate of mine, in my opinion, if I have them, there are great, so many great ball hockey players in history. And, you know, the, I can name you 10, 20 of the great all-time greats. But Wayne, to me, was the number one. Uh, maybe I'm a little bit biased because I played with him. And I saw him on a daily basis and I, I grew up with him. But uh, Wayne was also a tall guy. So if we're stuck on an island and we need, you know, things to, to live off of, he might be uh, helpful in that regard. And he was also just a great human being. That's a good answer. So what sort of teams did you play for with Wayne like what's the background to your relationship well we played on a team uh, many years ago uh well we used to play growing up we played in gym league you know or on the street we played in the school yards 
we played in gym leagues, which weren't really like official, uh, you know, CBHA leagues. And then we, we kind of broke into tier one, you know, there was a team called the Toronto blues. And then, and then Wayne got poached right away to play with midnight express. Cause you know, he was an elite player. So his career was, uh, was midnight express. And uh, so we were actually opponents for, for many, many years. I that's, it's a challenge to a friendship, but in a way it's the best sort of competitive challenge, isn't it? Well, the funny thing was, uh, I always wanted to beat Midnight Express. Back then they were an elite team. They were the best team in, in Canada by far. And they had so many great players and, you know, they, uh, there were times when I may have had an opportunity to join them for a tournament or something like that, but I kind of, I didn't want to play with them. I wanted to beat them. And unfortunately that never happened. So, <laughs> so, uh, it's funny because, uh, eventually when, uh, you know, they had great players like James Chicky Mantis. They had Terry Griffith, Wayne Shears, Bobby Mantis, goaltender was Dana Carnegie, uh, Paulie Neva, so many great players. And, and, uh, you know, as the franchise went on, they, they won five in a row and then, you know, red light came around and they won seven in a row. So it was time for, for somebody to knock off red light. And, uh, James Mantis asked me to, to join midnight, uh, to try to put together a, a great Ontario based team to, to knock off Quebec. And, uh, we finally did that in 2009. So, oh, amazing. Uh, you, know, you know, that's old saying, if you, you can't beat them, join them. Yeah, that's, that's, it works. That, that, that's what happened. And, and thankfully, you know, I, I'm appreciative of, of, of James, of uh, Chicky Mantis's uh, opportunity. So I actually uh, won two other gold medals with them as well. And most recently this year, um, I turned 50 and, and he had me on the team. I only played the one game, but I was on the bench and as a, as a backup. And I really enjoyed that experience. We won a gold medal. And that was my, the last time I ever wore my gear. So oh, it's, wow. uh, it's a nice way to end a career. Yeah, that, that's amazing. Yes. That, that actually builds on to a question that we had planned. So you've played in 22 Canadian National Championships. Uh, I think that's correct. Um, and that obviously culminated with your third gold medal. What are the earliest memories of playing at Nationals? And sort of how did the game change from 22 years ago to now? Well, my first nationals was 1997 in St. John's, Newfoundland, and that was an unbelievable experience. That was the first time I really had ever played in an arena that was full. I mean, we had played local games that, you know, a couple hundred people, but when we were in St. John's, it seemed like the whole community came out and they had a home team, obviously, that was they were supporting. And uh, the team I was with was a very young team called the Toronto Panthers. And uh, that was their first time at Nationals. I was actually a pickup on that team. I, I, it wasn't my team. They just asked me to join them for the tournament. So we went to St. John's and played some great teams. We played the Montreal Black Knights. Uh, we played the home team from Newfoundland. And we actually played them in the semifinal. I'll never forget that game because this, the arena was packed. We were down 3 nothing early and, and the noise was just deafening. And then we started to come back 3-1, 3-2, 3-3, led by one of the greatest players that I ever played with as well was, was Moro, Moro Minosa, who, uh, who was fantastic in that tournament. And he, he led us to an overtime. We scored an overtime and won that game 4-3. And the beer cans and the bottles just came flying from the stands. It was just such an, such an experience. I mean, the fans were so passionate there in St. John's. And it was, you know, we just beat the home team and, it was it was just such a, a great experience. A little scary, to be honest, 
but uh, we got off the floor safely and uh, we went on to play in the final against Midnight Express who, uh, who beat us that year uh, like they did every year pretty much. So they, they were unbeatable at the time, but the fact that we got to the final in our first tournament was, was quite the accomplishment. Yeah, that's amazing. Sort of just the different environments that you have to play in. He's like, there's new challenges everywhere, isn't there? Um, so how have like nationals changed in whether whether it's the structure or just maybe the organization side of it as ball hockey continues to grow? Like, how would you say they've changed since 1997? Well, um, they were at the time for me, they were it was such a new thing that I was really excited to go. And I, I fell in love with, with the sport at a young age, but when you, when you start playing in these high level tournaments, that's when you start to see the best players, not just that, you know, in your community, but across Canada and the nationals became the ultimate goal for me at the time, because that's the highest level I'd ever played and going to those tournaments and seeing players that you've never played against before. It's such a, a great feeling like to, you know, at that time there was no internet, you know, you didn't really know any of the other guys. So you would show up, and as, as a goaltender, you don't know who can shoot, who can't shoot. And, and it was just such a, a great experience to, to play teams from all across Canada. And I, I mean, the, the, I think the level is still fantastic. And in terms of changes, I, I just think that now all the games are broadcast. People can watch them online. And uh, it's just more of um, people know each other. I think that's the biggest difference is back then you just didn't know who your opponent was. And you, you weren't friends with them. You weren't friends with them on Facebook. There was no speaking to your opponent it was kind of like they were the enemy and you just played for your team and that was it and now it's a lot more of a community a lot of the guys say hi to each other we've played each other so many times and then you become friends so it's just a little it was a little bit more uh i guess antagonistic back then you know it was really hard competition where you truly dislike the other teams yeah that's interesting actually because i think in a sport like ball hockey you need to have the right balance of it being antagonistic and it not being like best friends playing against each other if that makes sense because you need to you you do need games to be played on the edge so it's probably an interesting challenge for players to put aside their friendships and maintain sort of that competitiveness if i'm not mistaken i believe we used to play in July and then, Hey, we got to go to the, you know, across Canada next month. So there was very little uh, preparation time in the sense of, you know, planning to take the time off. Right? Guys just listen, if you're going to national, you just, you just, you're just there. You just got to make sure that you're there. Yeah. I mean, that's a big sacrifice to make. And it sort of comes back to ball hockey still being an amateur sport and, the players that are at world championships, the players that are at national championships are there because they want to be there and because they love the game rather than any sort of financial or, well, yeah, any any financial motivation. Yes. It, they are there because of the love of the game, which makes it so special. That's absolutely right, Ben. That's one of the things I was going to mention that I love about the sport is I don't feel like it's tainted by money in any way in the sense of, nobody's making an income we all love the game we all pay out of pocket to make sure that we go to these tournaments and we just love the game so much that we, we go to across the overseas and we play and you know these are the best players in the world and you know but we don't have that financial compensation which i think is makes it like a pure a pure sport in that sense like you do it because you love it there are no agents there's no contracts 
there's no holding out, none of that stuff. You just go because you love it. You know, if, if someone asked me to play on Team Canada, uh, I would be over the moon. And I have been over the moon when I heard the news, when I, when I received the news the first time. So that's something that, uh, you know, I would never say, oh, you know what, I'm not going to play for Canada because that's going to affect my contract with this team or whatever. That happens a lot in basketball, I find. A lot of players uh, don't play for the national teams in basketball, uh, right. unfortunately, for in Canada, the United States. So I just couldn't, I can't wrap my head around that concept. Yeah, yeah I know what you mean. So you, you touched on it there. Um, how did your domestic career lead to the first time you were called up to play for Team Canada? And what was that? Can, like, can you remember how you felt when you first received that phone call? Yes. Well, interesting you say that because it was the first time I played for Canada was. So my first nationals was 1997, and I remember that was in August. And then I, I remember going to a Christmas party and coming home. And back then, no cell phones, no internet. You have to remember that. Uh, my answering machine at home was blinking, you know, the red light blinking. So yeah. I, I got home from a Christmas party late, and I, it was uh, December, and I, I, I pressed play, and it was... Team Canada coach basically saying, hi, Daniel, it's, this is uh, Coach, but letting you know that uh, you've been selected to play for Team Canada at the 1998 World Championships in the Czech Republic. Wow. Uh, please give me a call back and get a chance. And I, I literally, I remember literally jumping up and down in my living room. Uh, it was just such a great, I was, it was unexpected. I, I, at the time, there had only been one World Championship before that, it was 96. I didn't know much about it. Again, it was all word of mouth. There was no internet websites, anything that you could follow. Everything that you heard was mouth. And that was such a, a great uh, feeling. And, and when I did go in 98 for the first time to be Canada's goalie, one of Canada's goalies, we, it was such a, an experience. I'll never forget it. That's unbelievable. And how did the 1998 World Championships go for Canada, for those that wouldn't know? Yeah, so that it was held in Lita Marie, Czech Republic. So I'll tell you a little story about that since we have time. Uh, at the time, so Canada had won the, the, the inaugural World Championships in 1996. So in 1998, we went over there. Uh, most of the players were from Quebec and Ontario, and there were some other players from other provinces, but the majority of the team were, it was pretty much, you know, 40% Quebec, 40% Ontario, and then 20% everywhere else. And so we kind of went over there with some teammates and I got to meet a lot of players that I had never met before. So, you know, someone that was on that team, uh, Paulo Musto was, you know, unbelievable player in Quebec, still an unbelievable player. He, he was there. That's the first time I met him, played with him. I met Tony Ainito, who was a general manager at that time. And, uh, you know, I've known Tony now for so many years, but that was the first time I had met him. Our head coach was Lino Choma. Uh, and he was, uh, you know, from Ontario, so I knew him. But we went over there, and it was quite. Uh, again, I keep mentioning no internet, no nothing like that. So the, there was a huge language barrier. A lot at that time in the Czech Republic, very few people spoke English. I think if you go there now, you know, many most people can communicate in some way mm. with English or with apps or whatever. But when when we went there, then it was really hard to find anyone that spoke a lick of English. And uh, we, I remember walking around with uh, a little dictionary. It was like an English Czech dictionary. So in order to communicate, or you go, you're at McDonald's and you want to order something or 
just talk to anyone in general. You literally had to look through the dictionary and try to formulate sentences, which was very different. And uh, and at the time, I also remember too that things were like we were wearing. Canada always wore shorts. Yeah. Um, like Canadian players always wore shorts. And back then, I remember the '96 team. They wore long pants, and I don't know if that was a rule or not. But we showed up in '98 with our regular shorts and our socks up to our knee. And I remember they gave us a hard time about it. And they said, "Yo, you can't wear this." And we were like, "What do you mean you can't wear this? This is what we wear." And uh, there was some sort of discussion. You know, at the time I was just a player; I wasn't an executive, so I wasn't involved in those debates. But it turned out that we were able to wear our usual gear. All the other teams wore long pants, and so that was the one thing. We thought, okay, and they're already starting to mess with us psychologically. The ball that they were using was different. It was very bouncy. It kind of was like playing with a tennis ball. So we were up, we were thrown mm-hmm. off by that. Our hotel was an hour away. You know, other teams were staying close to the arena. You know, Canada was, we were put in a, in a hotel an hour away. Now, I'm not saying that that was done on purpose. I'm just saying that the per- player's perception was it's us against, you know, uh, the world. Kind of a. Eastern Bloc country, you know, the right, Czech yeah. Republic obviously had come from a different, their history was still kind of uh, fresh uh, from, from their the political stuff that they had with the previous regimes and stuff. So we we were going into like a really foreign country. And I don't feel that way about Czech Republic now. I absolutely love the country and I, that, it's my favorite place to play ball hockey. So love that country. And But at the time it was quite intimidating going there. You know, we had to carry our passports around. At, uh, on all at all times it was just right. kind of a, a very unique experience at the time but anyway we we played well we we, we met the Czechs in the semi-final and then there was uh, you know some controversy in the sense that we were in the penalty box the whole game and you know our style of play in Canada has always been more physical and and um that was the second time in my career where we had some interaction with the fans and they were throwing some stuff on the, on the floor. So at 98, 97 St. John's and then 98 Czech Republic had the same type of experience where, you know, we were disliked and people were throwing stuff at us and, you know, it was, it was fine. It was just quite an experience. That was a difficult loss for us, but we went on to play the United States in the bronze medal game and, and win that game. So, so we, we won bronze. So that was my first world championship experience, but, I had never been in a situation where there were literally about 5,000 people in the stands and it just was so loud. It was so loud and it, playing in front of a full packed house like that was was just an incredible experience. I remember just being on the bus. You know, we, we were on a bus uh, to the games every every game and, and it was quite the long ride. But when we, when we would approach the city, you could literally see fans walking towards the arena like in you know with their flags and stuff and we knew that we were going to enemy territory so you're driving on the bus and you're seeing everybody walking in one direction wearing their you know czech republic gear uh, their jerseys and and their their flags and it was it was just quite an experience for the first time in my life i felt what it was like to be a professional player but i'll never forget that and and since then i've been that's what's kept me going all these years is trying to get to nationals and trying to get to world championship because you know you play on a weekly basis in your local leagues but the only reason for me that was just a means to an end which is to to play at the highest level yeah that's amazing really just when you're able to go to i think it's especially the case in 
the Czech Republic in Slovakia that you just see sort of how big ball hockey is and the impact that it has on those two countries culturally. Whereas when you're playing domestically, I guess especially in Britain from my perspective where it's like quite small leagues and stuff that that are growing, you'd never think how big the game can be, if that makes sense. So I think everyone particularly remembers their first experience of playing abroad. When I was a kid playing on the street, I couldn't imagine that one day I'd be in a stadium in Switzerland or Slovakia or Czech Republic, and I would be playing in front of a full house. It's just unbelievable to me. So those three countries particularly, I mean, it's great that Canada's hosting and we're going to do, we're going to have a great tournament next year. But when you go to Slovakia or Czech Republic or Switzerland in particular, those three countries, it's the next level. It's, it's really, you know, the fans are into it. The stadiums are full. It's just such an unbelievable experience. So you played in one more world championship for Canada. Um, what tournament was that? And then can you sort of introduce your transition to then working for and playing for the Portuguese Ball Hockey Association? Well, that was the one tournament that I had played in 98. And then I didn't play again. Uh, you know, I was, I was uh, playing just provincial tournaments, nationals, uh, but I wasn't on the national team until... Uh, I remember 2003, the world championship was in, was in Switzerland and uh, Italy sent a team and All right, okay. the players on the Italian team were, were local guys from, from Toronto and, and they did really well and they rep- you know, they were trying to grow the game and, and they had some contacts in Italy as well. And they were, you know, they basically emerged as a new nation in, in the ISBHF. So when I saw that, I thought, Hey, you know, my heritage is Portuguese. Um, I was born in Canada, but I have Portuguese citizenship. And a lot of the guys I grew up with in the Portuguese neighborhood were great players. And right. many of them were born in Portugal and came to Canada as young children. And a lot of the others were, were born in Canada, like myself, but were Portuguese citizenship citizens because our parents, you know, insisted on doing that and, and got us the, the dual citizenship. Yeah, yeah. So, I thought to myself, hey, you know, we can do this. So I, I went through the process of applying for, uh, we started the Portuguese Ball Hockey Association and in 2004 with the goal of being at the World Championship in 2005. So in 2005, I got to participate in my second World Championship, which was in Pittsburgh, USA. And we uh, did very well. We had a fantastic team. And uh, we kind of, I think we caught everybody by surprise because, um, our players were elite players. We started in the B pool because that was the process. When you're a new a new nation, you have to start in the B pool, and we we won the B pool pretty easily. And we and in that tournament, we had the opportunity to cross over into the A. So we played an elimination crossover game against the United States and won that game. Oh wow! Um, yeah. Big upset. And that game, yeah, I mean, it, uh, they had you know they were led by. Chris Hauser, who's, you know, a legendary U.S. player and father of Bobby Hauser, who, you know, also a legendary player for the U.S. And at that time, in 2005, we, we crossed over, we won that game. And then 
we moved into the quarterfinals against the top seed. You know, the top seed got to play the B pool seed coming up. Yeah, yeah. Czech Republic. Oh wow! Here we are. Here we are. Portugal playing quarterfinals against Czech Republic, and what an outstanding game! We actually were up by two goals with about two minutes left, and they pulled the goalie and they scored twice in the last two oh, minutes wow. to tie the game. And we we thought we had it in the bag, and we didn't have it in the bag. They came back, gave us a run, tied the game. Then we played a ten-minute overtime, and nobody scored. You know, there were goal posts and great saves on both sides. And then we went to a shootout, and uh, many, many shooters in that shootout. We ended up winning, and uh, that was we just erupted with with pride and, and joy. Yeah, yeah. We had beat a powerhouse team, and that's the only time that I am aware that the Czech Republic had ever participated in a World Championship and not taken home a medal. So. Wow. They were obviously disappointed. Uh, I think they may have been caught a little bit by surprise, to be honest, because nobody knew Portugal. But we we were basically Canadian players, uh, but all with Portuguese either citizenship or born in Portugal, and um, with the support of the Portuguese government. So we we were a legit team. Yeah, yeah. And you know we ended up playing Canada in the semifinal, and Canada at that time they probably arguably had the best team they've ever had. Um, they had, you know, a bunch of guys from Midnight Express. They had, you know, Alex Burroughs, Gilbert, Fontaine. That line was arguably the best line ever to play ball hockey. And we, we lost 2 nothing. hit a couple goalposts, and it was a close game, could have gone either way. But we lost 2 nothing when Alex Burroughs scored both goals in that game. And, you know, we were disappointed. But to say that we lost to the best team in the world by two goals, Scored by Alex Boros as well. Yes, and and, and only losing two nothing that was quite an accomplishment. Yeah, yeah. they went on. They went on to win the gold medal. Uh, I believe they played Slovakia in the gold medal game, and and they ended up winning that. So that was their. uh, That was two thousand five. So that was their third gold medal in a row, uh, in their four year streak. So they were in year three of a dynasty, and yeah, uh, yeah. we were that close to you know a new team, B pool. Nobody knew us, and we almost took down. We took down one giant. We almost took down the second. That would have been quite the story if we did that. I mean, that's a great first tournament. And an example is obviously the Czech Republic game. You've beaten the Czech Republic multiple times, I believe. Um, And then personally, you were named to the World Championship All-Star teams in 2013 and 2015. What memory does stick out the most for you? Is it that first win against the Czech Republic as a player for Portugal? That one does. I mean, all three of them do because, you know, we went back to in 2011 when Portugal played in Slovakia. We were playing in Bratislava in a fantastic arena. We played the Czechs. In, this was a round-robin game. And, and that game actually was important to us because had we lost by a certain amount of goals, we would have been eliminated from the tournament. So we were just thinking, okay, guys, let's just not lose big. Let's just, you know, even if we lose, let's keep the game close. So the goal was to not not get blown out so that we could qualify for the next round. I remember we were we were fighting against Finland for the qualification because we had tied them in the first game. And then it basically it came down to goal differential to see whether it was going to be Finland or Portugal moving through the quarterfinals. So they had lost to Canada by several goals, which was helping which helped us. And then we were playing next and we're like okay guys we, we just have to lose by less than a certain number i think it was five goals something like that which at the time 
you know, it wasn't inconceivable for the Czech Republic to, to beat us by five goals. That that was well within the realm of possibility. And we just thought, okay, let's play a tight game. And we ended up winning four to three, which was a great accomplishment. So we had, and at the time they were the defending world champions because they had won at home in 2009. So we beat the defending world champions. And ironically, they ended up going on to win the tournament and becoming world champions for the second year in a row, second time in a row. So they won the tournament in the end, but we, for us, that was a huge victory to get us through to the quarterfinal, which we, we needed to do. And that's the other thing I was going to say, Portugal, we, we, I played, we played seven world championships and we made the quarterfinal in every single tournament. Wow. And we made the semifinals in two of the seven tournaments. So we were always either quarterfinalists or semifinalists. My la- my la- the other memory I have is uh, 2013 St. John's, you know, Portugal. We, we, it was at home in Canada. You know, we didn't have the strongest possible team that year because some of our players were playing in another event and they had decided to go do that rather than play with us. So we were kind of disappointed. But, you know, we went with a younger team, uh, a team with a lot of heart, and we were well coached. So our first game... Uh, first game we played Czech Republic in 2013 St. John's and we actually that game was unbelievable for us I think the shots on goal were something like 45 to 10 for them and, wow. and we ended up winning we ended up winning one nothing so oh wow uh, we got a goal in the second period and we just hung on and played our I mean Portugal was known for our stout defensive play um, and you know between our guys just blocking shots and we had an unbelievable penalty kill. I think that was because we kept taking so many penalties, but we got so good at killing them. <laughs> but we, uh, we just, uh, it was such a great experience. We, and at that time, again, they were defending world champions and, and we beat them one nothing. And they went on to play in the final against uh, Slovakia. And Slovakia, that was their first of their long run that they're currently on now. So Fanta, we, we lost in the semis against Slovakia. We lost by a goal, four to three. So again, we, we've been right there as Portugal, uh, we were very proud of, of our successes. No, I think that's amazing sort of see a non-traditional ball hockey country uh, enjoy so much success. So d- domestically speaking in Portugal, what links do you have to the ball hockey scene there? Or is it sort of very dominated by Canada, if that makes sense? Like Portuguese players within the Canadian ball hockey scene? Yeah, so the Portuguese, we were basically Canadian players uh, with Portuguese citizenship. Yeah. And that's one thing that we took pride in is that we, all of our players, uh, there were very few that were considered heritage players. We actually all had citizenship. So right. um, what, hap- what happened there was we had uh, some connections in Portugal. Now, Portugal's the interesting thing is they're well known for being good at roller hockey. I don't know if you've ever seen this sport. It's not inline. It's roller skates with four wheels. Now, Portugal is actually 16-time world champions, and they're oh, current wow. world champions in that sport. Right. Um, they actually, the, only, the only other country that has more is Spain. Spain has 17 world titles. Portugal is 16, and then nobody else is close. I think wow. Argentina comes next with eight. Um, but that sport, Portugal is quite dominant at So we felt that if we were to grow, that could have been the way that we grow the game there because they're all already used to playing a type of hockey and they're very, they're very good at it. But we found that, I mean, there were some people that we connected with there and 
they were interested in our game, but the challenge was, you know, they're trying to, you know, they're trying to grow their, like soccer is king in, in, in Portugal. So yeah, they're trying to, they have a secondary sport already that they're trying to grow. So when, when another sport comes in, that's kind of similar, it just wasn't in their interest to try to grow that game when they have a similar game that they're trying to grow at the same time. They, they, they didn't want to like basically divide the interested players. I'm not saying that there's no chance. So the Portuguese program right now is on, on hold. Uh, we do have a few people there uh, that I connected with before I came over to Canada. Uh, there's a gentleman there who actually does ball hockey uh, once a week uh, in, in, a, in a gym, which is where they, they do the, the roller hockey. But they just basically take the skates off and they play on their with their sneakers and run around. Yeah. yeah. So there is introduction. I feel like ball hockey is an introduction maybe to that sport, and there is an opportunity to grow it there. Uh, the thing is, you just need somebody who is passionate and knows the game and lives yeah. in Portugal. Like for example, if if someone like myself were to retire in Portugal and live there full time, I could see that being something that. You need someone like that that's going to bring the knowledge and experience and, and the passion to grow the sport in that country. If you don't have that inherent ball hockey love, it's really difficult to bring it to someone and say, here, this is what we want you to do, grow it. It has to be someone that's permanently living there, I think. Currently, so the last World Championship, Portugal did not participate, and I don't believe they're participating in this upcoming one. But that doesn't mean that the program is dead. I think that there's a possibility that... If the right people uh, get involved and, and, you know, they can get to where it needs to be. I think, I think it's interesting to sort of see how like the, diff- the challenges that different programs come up against. And hopefully there are the people that like, hopefully there's sort of the foundations in place to continue growing the game, whether it be in Portuguese communities in Canada or then eventually organically within Portugal itself. Yeah, there's definitely the possibility of that happening. It just takes a lot of dedication. I, I, I commend all of the people that run the programs across the world. They do it again. It's we don't. This is not an income generating uh, venture for us. We yeah. do it because we love it, and we and we donate our time because we love the sport. So we just have to find the right people uh, in those countries to take the uh, the sport to the next level. Yeah, it's basic. Running a national program is basically a full time job that doesn't necessarily provide any income. So it's a lot of dedication. Yes, yes, it definitely is. But we love it. So on that note, in terms of management, you've moved into the general manager role of the men's Canadian national team. Uh, How did you come into that role? And then how have preparations began for the World Championships that are coming next year? Well, I had resigned from the Portugal program after the 2017 World Championship in the Czech Republic. Uh, I thought that that was kind of the, at that point I had done seven World Championships. I felt that like it was time to pass the torch to, you know, someone else. And um, so I had resigned from that program and I actually wasn't, it's not like I left Portugal to come to Canada. It was just, I had decided that that was it for me. And then one day I went on the Canadian Ball Hockey website and I saw that they posted the position of general manager. And I thought that with my experience running the Portugal program and my experience playing and, and having been at nationals, you know, 22 times, I, I just couldn't see how there would be anybody out there who had seen the players as much as I've seen them and had the 
administrative background required to do the job. So I, I sent in my resume. I know there were some great candidates and, you know, I was actually, I wasn't sure if I was going to get the job, but I was pleased to, to have been uh, offered the position and I was ecstatic about it. So I did everything I could 2000 uh, for the, at the 2019 world championship in, in Kosice. We put together a team. Uh, we, we did, you know, we won six games out of seven. We lost to the home team in the semifinal to Slovakia. And, um, you know, I, I learned a lot from that experience. And I, I think that this time around from having learned as a you know, rookie GM in the sense of my first time with Canada, just learning, you know, what we could improve on and how we could uh, make our team better. Uh, we took some of those learnings and are now are applying them for this year's team. We, again, the turn was supposed to be this year, 2021, but as you know, because of the pandemic, we have to postpone it a year. So this year we're doing things differently. And uh, I think that, you know, we're very well on our way to have one of the better teams that Canada's had since they've won, since they won back in the days when they won four in a row. Uh, this is actually a really important year in terms of international competition, because uh, the history is Canada has five gold medals. Uh, they had won 98 and then they won four in a row from, uh, you know, 2000 till like 2007 was their last one. So they won one and then they won five in a row, four in a row after that. So Canada has five golds in total. Slovakia has matched Canada's record. Slovakia mm. won their first back in um, 1999. And then um, they won four in a row starting in 13, 13, 15, 17 and 19 so now canada and slovakia are neck and neck uh, the czechs are also up there if they win the next tournament then they will close the gap and it'll be like three teams trying to be you know considered the best of all time those three teams are fighting for you know supremacy so this particular tournament is going to be either a new team winning like usa or greece or italy uh, or switzerland or finland who had a great tournament last time so any of the teams can win but if any of the th the traditional big three win, then it becomes Canada kind of taking the lead or Slovakia setting a new record or Czech Republic closing the gap and making it a three, a three horse race. So it's kind of like, it's really interesting to see what's going to happen. This particular tournament coming up is, is going to really have a, a lot of uh, implications historically in terms of who is the best of all time. Yeah, I completely agree. And that's just so exciting sort of having had a year of postponements or two years of postponements really um to now have a full summer with hopefully a full schedule of tournaments and some history making moments so it is very exciting yes it's uh, it's very exciting now my hope is that you know there's a we all know what's happened the last couple of years with the pandemic uh i really hope that there isn't any type of uh, i really hope that all the teams come with a, with their strongest possible squad you know, we have the advantage as Canada playing at home, but we want everybody to bring their best because, uh, you know, we just want to compete in a in a best on best scenario. So hopefully there aren't any uh, obstacles for the other countries to bring their best players. Yeah, that obviously remains unseen. We'll have to sort of see how the pandemic continues to hopefully fade away and but it is just very exciting to have hockey to look forward to again after a year and a half, two years of very little. Yeah, so I was just in Montreal last weekend. Oh yeah, of course. I was also there three weeks prior, so I went to watch the uh, Quebec Provincials so we can scout players to invite to our final selection camp. But while I was there, I got to tour 
the uh, stadium where the tr- world championship is going to happen. So the Place, oh, yeah. Place Bell is a beautiful 10,000 seat arena where the Montreal Canadiens um, AHL affiliate plays the Laval Rocket. Beautiful facility. It looks brand new. I think the players from all across the world are going to enjoy playing there, but not just that. Montreal, Laval, that area is in terms of tourism and, you know, it's a, I think the international players will really enjoy visiting, um, you know, Montreal and the Montreal area. Uh, it's, it would be su- such a great city to, uh, to visit as a, as a tourist as well, in, in addition. Yeah, I think that's such a crucial thing to ball hockey tournaments as well. It sort of comes back to it being an amateur sport and people being there because they love it. It provides opportunities to experience different cultures that you wouldn't otherwise ever come across. I don't think that many people would necessarily pick out Kasichi for a holiday, but if you go for the World Championships, it was an amazing experience, if that makes sense. Absolutely, it was. You know, I've been to some fantastic cities in my in my career. And that's one of the things that I love about ball hockey is I've traveled across Canada and seen all the major provinces and cities because of hockey. I've traveled across Canada, the world for ball hockey, and I've been to places that I would never have been to if it weren't for this sport. So I'm really uh, appreciative of that. And I also have made some friends over the years, you know, with players from other teams, other countries, and, and we stay in contact. It's it's fantastic. We um, at um, at the last World Championship, I, got, I actually in Slovakia. So Stanislav Petrik is, you know, widely considered to be the best goaltender of all time. And you know, Stan and I have competed against each other many, many times. And um, he was at in Kosice. You know, he had retired and was given like a, he was recognized prior to the first game as I think it was a Hall of Fame type ceremony. So he was recognized, and I was kind of surprised that he wasn't playing at home. I thought that that would be like the last tournament for him to kind of go out on a high, but he decided that he, he had called it a career and, you know, we got together, we exchanged jerseys, you know, we both had young children at the same time. So he had a little daughter, right? My son was seven weeks old and he, we went to Slovakia. His daughter, his daughter was around the same age. So we, you know, it was, um, really nice because you know we stayed in contact even though we were competitors for many many years we stayed in touch we played we played against each other at the masters world championship in bermuda so uh, that type of thing is you, you you kind of develop a respect for your opponent but also develop a friendship and, and now we kind of like message each other and we send each other photos of our kids and that kind of thing so it's such a great uh a great feeling to to have that type of relationship with international players i think that sums it up it's a great example it sums it up perfectly really just the opportunities that an amateur sport can provide they're just boundless really so yeah that's a, that's a lovely story so to sort of wrap up the interview how have you seen ball hockey grow since you first got involved and so sort of when you go back to like gym hockey could you ever have imagined the career that you've had i absolutely cannot it's, it's incredible i I, I played in the laneway, so like in Toronto, the streets, you know, they, we have our residential streets and then behind the streets, there are laneways, alleyways, where all the garages are, where people park their car behind their house. And that's where I first started playing, was in a, in a laneway. And I played there for years as a kid. We played, it was safer than playing on the street, with less traffic. And then we, we played in schoolyards. I could never have imagined that one day I'd be stepping on a floor in front of a full stadium thousands and thousands of people 
I just could not imagine that it ever happening. So, so it was, it's grown so much. And that's one of the reasons I've played for so long. You know, I, I hung him up as a player at, at 50 years old. There's no way I would have played till 50 if, um, if the world championships didn't exist, because that was the one thing that kept me motivated, kept me wanting to stay in shape. Every time a world championship would end, I thought, okay, that's my last one. But then I'd be like, well, the next one's only two years away. You know, if I'm in shape now, I could be in shape then. So I kept pushing two more years and two more years and two more years. And it's kind of, that's what kept me playing so long. And I'm at the point now where I've uh, decided to, to not play anymore and just focus on the GM responsibilities. And again, um, I hope that the, the one thing that's eluded me, I've, I've won gold medals at nationals and provincial championships, et cetera. The one I have silver, I have bronze medals. I have two gold medals as a master's player in 2015. Uh, we started 2016 in Banff, Alberta, fantastic tourism place. We won with the Canada Wolfpack. Robert Gladstone put together that team and we won that gold medal representing Canada. And then we won again in Bermuda, which was an outstanding experience playing on like literally overlooking the ocean. So I've won a lot of things, but the one medal that eludes me is the men's world championship medal. And uh, this is the, you know, my goal is this particular team. We're doing everything we possibly can to put together the best team and uh, playing at home. So for me, I, I look at this as my last chance. I and mean, this is my second opportunity as a, as a GM. I feel like if I'm not successful this time around, it's time to pass it on to somebody else and give someone else an opportunity. And even if we do win, I, I may decide to just call it a career because it's, there's nothing like going out on top, right? So we'll see. This is, this is a big tournament for me personally and also for Canada as a whole and also internationally in terms of determining the greatest of all time. So there's a lot riding on this tournament. It would be a nice way to end my career to, to, to have a gold medal and bring it back home to Canada because we haven't won since 2007. You've got an amazing story and you've had a special career both playing for Canada and then growing the program of the Portuguese Ball Hockey Association. And it's very clear that you've dedicated most of your adult life to your love of ball hockey. So it's great to hear your story and get your perspective of what ball hockey can do for an individual and then different communities as well. So thank you very much for speaking to us. My pleasure, Ben. This was fantastic. And I'm honored to be one of your first guests. Uh, there's so many other people you could have asked, but I'm, I'm honored that you reached out to me. And I'm looking forward to listening to the podcast on a weekly basis and hearing other people's stories. Uh, George's episode was fantastic. He's a great storyteller. And uh, I look forward to uh, this being on my regular routine, listening to the Floating Blue podcast. Oh, well, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Floating Blue podcast, hosted by myself, Ben Royal, and produced by Sambrook Wilkinson. If you've enjoyed listening to this episode of the Floating Blue then be sure to subscribe on your favourite podcast streaming platform. You can find more content from the ISBHF across all of our social media platforms. On Facebook, you can find us at ISBHF, International Street and Ball Hockey Federation. On Instagram, at ISBHF. On Twitter, at Official ISBHF. And on our website, ISBHF.com. So until next time, thank you very much for joining us on the Floating Blue Podcast. Podcast.